Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then we'll begin. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. They can tell us we're crazy, and we can say, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Our society is complex, and we teach our students that they could just fix it. Go fix a military helicopter and see how far you get with that. I came across your TikTok, and I was like, um, and you're talking about the Hellfire Club, and I was kind of blown away because that's like so close to me and it's it's just weird when you come across something like as vast as the internet and it's only two seconds from your door does that make sense yeah it's really strange i put up a thing today just a joke saying you know i'm saying where i am like like tala in dublin and i wanted people yeah. to comment how far from my location they were yeah and it's that's that's why i couldn't find a notice like eleven thousand views on the thing and like 700 comments and it's like just trying to find anything on there but tiktok is i'm finding there's a kid used to live on my road who mm. I know him as a kid. He's an right. adult now. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I used to live on your road. It's, it's, it's crazy. Interesting. But the, but the amount of people who commented on the Hellfire Club piece, because I think anyone, and it's not just if you're from the immediate area, yeah. but so many people used to like, that was like going down the country for some people. Yeah. Well, I mean, but like, you know what I mean? this area has only been really built up over the past, say, like 20, 30 years. So, yeah. It would like before any of the housing estates or the super quins or the schools were built. It was all just farms, you know. Yeah. So well, I'm not quite that old. I used to live in. Neither uh, am I. I just hear about this. Directly across from me, there's a it's part of called Home Loans. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm originally from. Oh so, right, like, I've been I've been walking up the Hellfire Club like as soon as you kind of basically turn the age of seven. My dad used to march us up. Oh really? To the Hellfire Club. Um, and we walked straight up. Do you know Carty's Castle? It looks no. like, like a Norman Terror House halfway up the hill. There's a ruin as you look up. Oh, really? Um, it was actually built by the Loftus family, the same people who built Loftus Hall. And that's the the big house down beside it, is it? Like just like at like the base of the the road? No, no it's actually no. High, if, you, if you were if you were looking up the hill, it's halfway up the hill. There's a ruin of an old. It looks like a castle, but it was a big stately home. Oh, and. Okay. Uh, a lot of people seem to know Loftus Hall, but yeah. it's the same family, the Loftus family, who built that castle. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. That's weird. That's what got I, me into it all. Really? When you were just like strolling yeah. up with your dad, just having a look at these different yeah. ruins and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Because I used to hang around a lot in um, in Kingswood. In, do you know Kingswood in, in Tala? Yeah. Yeah. So, the you Valley know, Mount the, Castle. Yeah, the park there. And me and my cousin, yeah. we'd always run around the park there and we'd always go to the castle because it was so interesting and so fun and up a hill, you know? Yeah. I think growing up around anything like that produces a certain type of person. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Because one of the things I obviously want to talk to you about is storytelling because I'm always fascinated by people who can hold people with stories because I think it's the same in like stand-up comedy as well and movies and any anything with a good story really kind of, you allow someone to take you on a journey almost. And you just kind of sitting there and like feed me, you know. Well, yeah, and that's what podcasting is. Like, I mean, I, I worked in advertising for, Jesus, 10, 11 years or something like that beforehand, mm. and everything was like within that was about narrative. But nowadays, everyone talks about the, 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 the experience, even retail, theater, and stuff like that. But the whole platform of storytelling has gotten so much bigger, and probably the most successful form of storytelling you get is podcasts. Yeah, I think that's what you like. Know? Me, I, I personally, I, I love a good storyteller. So, like, if I can listen to a good podcast, I'll just sync my headphones on and have it on the background of anything and just be blown away by it because, you know, there's always, 
and I think it's the way in which a story is told. Like you, when I listen to your two podcasts, um, about the, oh, what is it again? The the fisherman's son, which like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that that took a turn for me. I didn't know where that was going. You threw the you threw the kid in the in the in the river. Like what? Yeah, that was that was because I remember like I was over in Glinsk in the west of Ireland because an awful lot of that is true. Like I mean, I was talking to Michael and Michael yeah. shared a story. Now I've tweaked and changed it because Michael was a historian, but um. You know that's that's the beauty of being like of storytelling is that you can play with it. Yeah. Like there's re- there's a responsibility for keeping things accurate, and there's um there's a website called Dukas.ie, mm. and that was in the 1930s. Like thousands of school kids sat down, they went home to their parents, grandparents, yeah, collecting the stories, and they have all the journals, and oh, they're wow. all being transcribed now. But it was a big national kind of thing. It, it's called a it's called a schools collection. And it's the biggest collection of modern folklore uh, that we have. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, you kind of have to keep things, where someone tells you a story and you have to write it down, mm-hmm. there's actually boxes you have to tick officially um, to, for it to be classed as folklore. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, yeah, for folklore collections, is really serious. It's a lot more serious than I am with, with my style of storytelling, <laughs> but my work in the museum and that makes me very aware of what, what should be done right so there's a certain bureaucracy to taking down myths and legends almost yeah there's a there's another crowd called the oral history network and michael d higgins is the patron yeah fair enough Um, with that voice i mean oh yeah isn't he like i mean i wish he was my dad (laughs) yeah yeah no no offense to my actual dad um, (laughs) So we're the same with almost every good like male influence man. I've got oh god, god, I wish he was my dad. And then my dad's yeah. just kind of sitting there in the background watching yeah, TV. Yeah, you're okay too. You're okay yeah, yeah, yeah too. you're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, well, yeah, you t- you tell me what you want to talk about, what you want to ask, what you want to say, and I will just. I just want it to I be like this. I just want to have a conversation. Oh, okay, that's that's really you know? easy. I'm, yeah, I'm just interested <laughs> in you, um, in, no, in you more so. I mean, the health work club is what kind of got the two of us talking, and, and that place is amazing. Like, but. Yeah. You can't, like, I mean, I was literally just, I am on the other side of the Dodder River, yeah. you know, where that big red bridge is. The, like, what's called, the weir, where that is? Yeah, the, yeah, oh, no, just up from that, the big red bridge going yeah. across from the Speaker Connolly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Where that bridge is now is where we used to have to, like, wade through the river and climb up the other side, and there was a farm on the other side in the 80s. Right. With a big old barn, and uh, we used to, you know, make our way up there. And, and just straight up through the fields. But the Hellfire Club was was incredible. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to walk it now, I don't think. I drive my kids up and make them walk up the hill. Yeah, because I, I think the hill the is big enough. I think the hill is yeah. big enough. Like, I get up there. Uh, to be fair, me, me and my girlfriend the other morning, we walked from, like, m- where my house is, which is just, like, how do I put it? F- like, a 10-minute walk from Woodstown. So just before you get to that road. Yeah. And we walked yeah. up and all the way up to the Timber Trove and had coffee and just, like, up to the viewpoint and then walk back down yeah it was like it was a decent walk and to do it from where you're starting off like and having to trudge through a river at, yeah at seven years of age as well like it was a killer yeah we used to on so. the way back if we were really lucky we'd stop off at bridge of forks which was the pub that was there before the old mill right and right. we used to get like a, a glass of orange like dilute orange and a packet of crisps but we, we'd have to do that walk twice a year all the way up and all the way back and then I remember kind of going up as, as as a young adult. And I remember going up with a bunch of lads with like black bags and yeah. sweeping the place up and loading oh, really? the bags into a car. Just because, you know, 
No one else was looking after it. it it's been let go to ruin. Yeah. So, but it's it's yeah. When you when there was the uh, proposal a couple of years ago, I think it is now that they wanted to like bring in some kind of like national tourist center up there. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really torn on that because I work in tourism, you know, yeah. um, and I'm I'm at you know these big events where they're where you know the industry events where they're talking about it. And really funnily, I know one of the guys who's involved in doing the environmental impact statement on it. And I know him from school. Oh, and wow. I'm now talking to him like, and I'm torn because I don't want him to ruin it for people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I know there's elements of it that'd be so good for the community as well. Mm. I think the actual proposal, though, isn't. I mean, it's not like they're going to be charging people to go to the Hellfire Club. What they'll do is they're looking at building a, like a a skywalk across from the hill down into Massey's estate. So like you'd walk through the tops of the trees, oh. like kind of rope bridges. Oh, uh, interesting. Where Killakee House is, they'll put in there like a tourist information center and a cafe and proper car parking. Because mm. you, you're put your your valuables are at risk at the moment up there, you know? Yeah. Um yeah. but at the same time it's such an important space up there and doing any work would impact on it massively. Like mm. Massey's estate, Massey's estate would have rivaled the Botanic Gardens back in the day. Really? Yeah, there's every type of tree in there from all over Europe, uh, Asia, and um, America. Like you walk in there and you'll see like sequoia trees, which are like the big massive redwoods. Right. Um, there's trees there that you just don't get anywhere else. But if you because you go in, it was a huge house and gardens, and it was a guard headquarters for a while. Really. Um. The history of Massey's Wood is actually probably more interesting than the Hellfire Club itself. <laughs> um, but it, it goes back much further than the buildings that are there because there's wedge tombs and everything. And in their mythology, that whole area actually around Fairhouse and right at the hill was a, a fairy hunting ground. What? And it, it gets it gets referenced in, in stories like of the She and the Two of Day Danon running through the woods up there. And those That's stories amazing. are much older than any building like. Yeah. Because I, I always wonder, well, not I always wonder, but I'm curious now after hearing that and a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago uh, with a guy and just knowing this from general knowledge as well, is it like, a qu- I wonder, is there a correlation between places where you tend to find certain magical plants and these kind of like legendary stories? Because I know the Hellfire Club and up in that direction is very heavily populated with like magic mushrooms and liberty caps, as they're called. Yeah. Like, well, is yeah, it, there's, there's... I'm wondering, is it a, like, is there a correlation there? Do people like... There's that such make sense? a correlation there. There's been studies done on it. And now not in relation to like magic mushrooms, but it is hallucinogens. Mm. Uh, ergots, which are a type of fungus, where you have mills, like uh, windmills, like yeah. scaries, you have the three of them up there. They're graining, they're, they're grinding down grain and making flour. And all right. the flour that pushes to the edge of the millstone gets all dirty and kind of clogs up the edges. They use that to make the bread for the workers. But it contains this fungus and they're essentially disco biscuits. All the workers are eating this bread, which has fungus baked into it and they're all hallucinating. And you get higher reports of what we now call paranormal activity, like right. unusual stories and sightings. Yeah. All happen around those places. And you get the same in areas where you would have things like magic mushrooms growing. And then there's a weird phenomenon called infrasound, which is an ultra low frequency. Mm-hmm. And it causes your optic nerve to vibrate and you can feel nauseous. The Americans were developing it as a weapon called brown noise. Um, you can send a pulse of this, of this frequency, which is like, I think it's 18 
uh, megahertz. It's really low. It's like a really low rumble. Right. And uh, it causes people to get sick. They called it brown noise, the Americans, because it could cause intense bursts could cause someone to like soil themselves. I've but, heard this before, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's a thing that's naturally occurring. And where you get areas with the right type of stone and with water flowing through it, yeah. it causes vibration through the stone, which generates infrasound. And you can walk into an area and measure it. And um, at one place where it was measured that I was spending the night was the vaults in Edinburgh. Mm. And of course, it's right by a train station. And you've got the busy road driving over these 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 tunnels. So it's the vibrations through the stone that causes people to see these things out of the corner of their eyes. And um, you know what I mean? And, and to suddenly come over dizzy and feel sick. There's a lot of very real explanations for some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is fun, you know, uh, to kind of understand that as well. But yeah, people going up through the, the mountains and, and like chewing on these roots or eating these yeah. mushrooms. We're not the only culture that does it by any means. Yeah. You look at kind of like, you know, North American kind of shamans and stuff like that, where they're putting themselves into trance states and sweat lodges, and they're basically just getting off their bin. And then they come out of it thinking that they've been talking to their ancestors. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be. Of course, you're going to see more stuff like that, you know, in those areas than you would anywhere else. That's fair. Yeah. But it's just yeah. weird to think of the Hellfire Club and the correlation between that and and that kind of stuff as well. But I remember... The first thing I remember hearing about the Hellfire Club was my granny told me that my granddad's friend was killed up there, right? And right. I, my dad still holds this as well. Um, I must actually get my granny to tell me this again. But she was saying that this, the version of the story that I was told was that there was the card game, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I'll butcher this, but man walked in with a jacket covering all his clothes, whatever, instead of playing cards dropped down a card, one of the guys went to pick up the card, I saw it was a hoof, and then the whole thing went up. Yeah. Long story short, like, you know. Well, and, that's the, and that's the same story from Loftus Hall. Really? Yeah, exact same story. But, your, but your, was your granddad at this card game? No, no, it was his friend. Okay. Right, so, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 yeah. the, the, I'm sure the everyone's fire, granddad's friend was at that card game. The fire up in the Hellfire Club, because the... Because it's weird, when you grow up like you and me and you're used to the building, you don't realise that that big window upstairs on the front yeah. was the front door. There what? was a staircase up to that. There was a wooden staircase up to that. The lower levels of the Hellfire Club were for storage and stuff like that. Essentially like a freezer. It's really cold, you know, so the yeah. ceilings are lower. All the business went on upstairs. Oh. So that doorway, the front is actually a doorway. And if you do a search, you'll probably see an old drawing of it uh, where it will show the stairs leading up to it. But um, the fire, because the, the, that's not the original roof in it either. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't originally a stone roof. But I think the fire was around, it was in the seventeen late 1740s, the mm -hmm. fire took place. And they fixed it up as, you know, as best they could, but by putting the stone roof on it. But it was it was basically abandoned after that. And they moved down the hill to what's now called Killakee House. Right. Which which isn't the original Killakee House. But... Um, yeah, the Hellfire Club, the actual official Hellfire Club, were using it from 1734, 1733, 1734, up until the fire in the late 40s. And then they moved down the road, or rather down the hill to the other house. And that's where an awful lot of the really kind of crazy goings on went. But there, but there absolutely was a huge fire. Whether yeah. it was the devil that caused the fire or not, I don't know. But there is a really strange story about um, the fire that isn't the devil, 
Yeah. And it's about um, it's about a, a little person, a man coming along, and he's described as like being deformed and of small stature. Mm-hmm. And he comes along on the night when they're having a card game, and he's just asking for lodgings and shelter just to get in out of the rain. There's a few versions of this, but yeah. they keep like they're having a bit of fun with him and they're messing with him a bit. Right. And um, he knocks a drink over one of the one of the socialites who are there. He then like douses in whiskey and sets fire to, him. and that's what caused it. That they apparently burnt his body in the uh, in the fireplace, but it got out of hand and. The whole place was engulfed. But weirdly, in 1969, in the house down the road, mm. um, which is Killikey House, um, they were doing works in there. They were converting it from a house to, it was going to become an artist studio, right. an artist in residence. And when they were digging it up, they found remains of a small person, which was documented in all the, there was actually an RTE documentary done about it. Um, so they weren't sure whether it was a child um, but it was charred, so there had been fire involved in it. And uh, they weren't sure, they couldn't say for definite at the time whether it was a child or a, a small man. Yeah. So, and that was the people who knew the stories, like for the, like, kind of the, you know, 175 years before that, mm. um, that must have been amazing to kind of have it all kind of come together for them. Yeah. But, but the house, Killikey House, I know Countess Markovich, who was involved in the 1916 rebellion, yeah. she stayed there for a while. Uh, it was an artist residence, um, and I, I studied fine art. And uh, one of my lecturers that I was talking to, this is obviously 20 odd years ago when I was mm. in college, knew someone who was there when it was an artist residence. And they were talking about when they're upstairs sleeping at night, the furniture downstairs being thrown around the place, and then they'd come down and find it. So it's, it, it, it's a really, it's a really, really strange one because I know Buck Whaley was involved with Killikey House as well. And Buck Whaley is, I mean, his own memoirs are called uh, Buck Whaley, Ireland's Greatest Adventurer. And he was involved with the Hellfire Club uh, in the late, I think it was like the 1780s, 1790s, he was involved with the Hellfire Club and would have been up there getting involved in all this drinking and debauchery, opiates, everything that they were getting up to, up there, you know, all the gambling. So he was a massive gambler. That's so fascinating because I never knew any of that. I knew about like I had that uh, like low resolution story of guy going up and card game and stuff. I never knew about any of that though. And it's it's nice. Well, it's not nice, obviously, but it's always fascinating when there's credibility added to a story like that. When like finding yeah. the body of the guy, that's so interesting though. And how, like you said, you studied fine arts in college. How do, how do you get from hiking up the Hellfire Club with your dad and your friends to? going along the path that you've gone on and going into you know being a storyteller and cultivating that skill it's really strange because i didn't talk much as a kid like i was really quiet like my right. dad was a sergeant major we were actually we originally lived in Carbro barracks uh, oh right okay. Mines. we like yeah. we lived in quarters my dad was a sergeant major my brother's just retired from the army after 31 years um and i i didn't go into the army at all i went off to study art but my big brother is seven years older than me and I had mm. sisters and there was right. no one really my age in my area kind of growing up so yeah. I was always fairly quiet didn't talk much I just spent all my time drawing oh. and actually looking up like I had I literally sat on a like a chest of drawers you know with it like be a tiltable kind of mirror on the back but the one we had had no mirror it was just a board mm. so I'd sit on the drawers and use that as an easel 
and I'd be looking out the window up at the Hellfire Club, sketching that, believing that I'd seen things in the farm across the road, like the ghost. But I know realistically, I was just kind of like in my own head an awful lot. Yeah, of course. Um, so I loved art, and that got me into, you know, that, you know, that led me to studying fine art, which was really unusual for a kid like growing up in the, you know, the eighties and nineties in Tallaght to go off and study fine art. Yeah, um, <laughs> like it didn't happen. Um, but I went off to do that, and all my interest around art was about how people looked at art and what type of people would go to an art gallery. Because mm. it wasn't me, like I wasn't the yeah. type of person. I didn't come from the type of people who did that. So I became interested in the experience of looking at art, and right. that actually got me interested in in kind of in sculpture and actually the space that you put your stuff in. And then that kind of the narrative around that is what got me interested in storytelling, um, or kind of reignited for me because I used to get out to Cork like during the summers when I was a kid for a week. Uh, to a camp down there and a couple of the nights they do storytelling around the fire so it always kind of just popped in and out but I never planned to be a storyteller you know I studied fine art I had an interest in talking to people and listening to people talking about what they're passionate about I had lecturers who had done some pieces of art like like proper craftsmen like like stonemasons you know I was taught how to letter a headstone while you know yeah. while studying sculpture you know proper fingers bleeding with like punches and lump hammers and chunks of granite and the guys who taught me how to do that were fascinating and incredible some of the best storytellers i've ever come across yeah. were two of my lecturers in college one of them had done the palm tree seat in temple bar and because they were used to talking about their work they were very comfortable talking to people and expressing themselves there as an artist you're expected to be able to talk about your feelings mm. So it was very easy to kind of tap into 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 that myself doing it. But I went on to do graphic design and I worked in advertising, like I said, and print. And that's all about communicating a message as well. And then I got interested or re-interested in the paranormal because of like growing up with the Hellfire Club. And yeah. I met a bunch of guys on uh, boards.e. Yeah, yeah. That used to be a huge thing. And we used to go off running around the country to castles and houses and we got to do stuff where like uh, Jerry Ryan like would would get us on every Halloween like to oh, talk really? about stuff. So having a, a platform to talk about the things we were interested in was was great, and I got used to that. And then we were doing big paranormal conventions. I was getting to meet like bring across authors that I loved and people from like ghosty kind of shows, TV shows that I loved, and I got to meet. So it became second nature to talk about the things I was passionate about. Yeah. And in the back of it, there was always that kind of like love of of, of ghost stories and, mm. and folk tales. Less so the mythology side of things. I'll be honest, I came to that fairly late. Mm-hmm. It kind of all kind of started falling into place. But I was made redundant twice um, working in design and then advertising, both within six months of my kids being born. Christ. And after the second time, I was working for myself. And actually, both in, both times in December in the run up to Christmas. Um. So I just, I knew I needed a change. So I was willing to do anything, any kind of job. And I saw an ad for Mm. the National Leprechaun Museum. And I was convinced it was a joke because it wasn't even open yet. It wasn't (laughs) built yet. Right, okay. Um, I was really strange. Like I I met up with the guy, um, initially met up with like a guy who was like managing it. And Mm. I did an interview with him. And then I got to meet the owner of the museum who 
is brilliant. I mean, we, we, we see each other like even now in COVID, like we'll see each other twice a week um, working on museum stuff. But yeah, they brought me in and it didn't take long for them to kind of tell me that there actually wasn't a role for me. They just thought it was interesting and they want to see how I'd fit. And then after a little while, sure, I was I had the keys and I was training storytellers and hiring storytellers and because I had that thing. I had that thing, like I didn't have the classical training that some of the guys I was working with, these guys who like had studied in the Lear Academy and the Gaiety School of Acting yeah. and stuff like that. But what I had was I had a genuine, authentic interest in what I was talking about and I was comfortable talking about it to people. Yeah. And I think I think that's one of the things people want to hear about. It actually doesn't matter what you're talking about an awful lot of time. Mm. Like for me, it's folklore, mythology and stuff like that. But if I listen to someone talking about the history of anything or, or talking about lawnmowers, I actually got talking to a guy about tractors before. And yeah. I've no interest in that stuff. But when someone's into something, you want to hear that. And I think that's kind of been the key to my you know, my the fact I've been doing it eleven years now and in a few days and uh, the museum's gonna be eleven years old. Unreal. And at from that point I can say that I am a professional storyteller for that <laughs> long, even though I was doing it before then. Yeah. But it's it's you know, it's been putting food on the table for eleven years. Which is but it's it's not incredible. Yeah, it's it, it's nuts. That was not yeah. an option for me like as a kid. Like realistically I should have yeah. just join the army and shut up. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but um but but that's the thing. You know yourself. You listen to someone talking about something that they're passionate about, mm. and that's that's all you want. Doesn't doesn't matter what the thing is. Yeah, and it also and makes it a lot easier for you to talk to them because you can just tune in. You don't have to do yeah. too much. And if you give someone a chance, I find that they'll just go on about it, and you'll be more than happy to listen because it's not so much like you said. If you're talking about lawnmower blades, you know, in, in a normal day, you don't really care. But when it comes to yeah someone who's passionate about it you're willing to sit there and go yes interesting i get it it's part of the reason i'm doing it, this yeah but it, it only works though if you have someone listening and it's strange now going from like having 20 people in a room you know and doing a doing a 45 minute 50 minute tour with them mm. um you know five times a day mm. to not being able to see your audience directly and that's difficult because I wonder if I was to be put in an empty room with like just talking out loud about folklore mythology, I'd get bored and I'd run out of it very quickly. Hmm. It's knowing that there's an audience and knowing that someone's going to engage with it is kind of what kind of spurs you on. When I do live storytelling online now, hmm. it's really strange because I kind of need another person there for it. Like this with you is really easy because you've got someone who like manages the flow hmm. of it and you're, it's right. it's a conversation, yeah. And I think, I think to me that's what traditional Irish storytelling is. It has to be conversational. It's not about being up on a stage and projecting a story mm. to you know to an audience of people. That has you have to be at the same level as the people. Yeah, um, yeah, I get that. Because even when I was listening to your first story about the fisherman uh, and the fisherman's son, it was like when you were describing the conversation with Michael. That's the guy's name. Yeah. Yeah, when you're describing the conversation with him, I can imagine walking up to someone on a country road and having that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it's gotten so much. Considering, again, I was that shy kid like who wasn't comfortable talking to people. Mm. Um, it's now just so easy because I know what the options are. I know yeah. how it, what, you know how potentially this is going to go. Is I'm going to get something or I'm going to get nothing. 
Hmm. Or you're going to get a dig in the head, depending on, on you know, yeah. where you are when you're asking the question. But, you know, I'm an Irish man. I'm, we're built, we're used to rejection. And being, yeah, that's you know fair. I mean? That's fair. So being told no is something we're kind of like, it's no skin off our backs, you know? <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> so I suppose another, I know you did another one about the puka. And when I was listening to them, I, I, I could have, I could have just put them on and I, I literally just got lost in it. It was amazing just to listen to those stories because, again, like anyone, I love a good story. I think it's just the ability to convey something and to have someone be lost in something. It must be unreal to, like like you say, stand in a room and just have these people just tune into you. And again, I get how it's difficult when like you're in times like this where a lot of people don't really want to put on their cameras even. And that can make yeah. a difference, you know, when you're just talking to a bunch of like icons of like a face and you're kind of like, what, what am I dealing with here? What are we doing here? It's definitely tougher, and that's why I think it's it's why again it's why I love TikTok. Um, and going from TikTok to doing like a podcast myself is that mm. you kind of get to know who your audience are. Mm. You know what I mean? It might seem like the internet is so vast, but you recognize avatars, you recognize usernames. You're like, ah. So yeah. I think it's important for me to go on like go live every so often. Yeah. Because right. then suddenly I have an image in my head of the person I'm talking to. It's yeah. like when you like see in an audience. Like the biggest audience I ever did storytelling to, I was really lucky. Um, I met a guy in the museum a few years ago mm. and we got chatting. I actually stood in like to do a, one of our over 18s tours. And I got talking to this guy at the end of the tour and he was saying he's from Michigan. And I was like, oh, that's great. I have family there. And we yeah. chatted. He's like, oh, you should come over sometime if you're visiting family. You should do some storytelling. And of course, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's, that'd be great. Yeah. Really nice guy. And I got an email a few weeks later from, um, for a woman, from a woman who worked with him. He actually mm. went, he he works with a place called the Flint Institute of Art. Now, I my background is fine art, so yeah. I know it's one of the top five uh, art uh, institutes in America. Right. And I immediately know what it is. And suddenly I'm getting contacted by one of the directors. And they're like, I believe you were talking to Dr. Klein. And he wants you to come over and tell stories. And I'm like, Alan. And she kept correcting me and going, no, Dr. Klein. And I'm getting the impression he's really important. Yeah. And uh, he is. He's like, but he's a really nice guy. He has a, a charity set up called the Sheppy Dog Fund. He's, um, I don't know what the proper name is for someone, like a dentist, but a dental surgeon in a hospital who does like reconstructive stuff. Oh, very good. So he's a really good guy. And he does an awful lot of work with kids in like, in around Flint, Michigan and Detroit mm. and all that, you know. Um, great charity work but he also brings in people to talk about stuff and do presentations right. so like i'd looked and i didn't you know like the the curator of the vatican museum or something like that had been mm-hmm. in doing one of the talks and Christ. suddenly i'm being asked to come over and do storytelling and yeah. it starts off well i'm going to be in this little room you know and i'll have a few people and it's going to be for halloween it was halloween 2019 mm. but like it all came together i went over it ended up being like their big auditorium um, I was the second person in the 90 year history to fill the auditorium, which is like over 300 people. Wow. And it wasn't about me because mm. no one had given a damn or knew who I was. Right. But there was that passion. It was like, it's Halloween. It's going to be dark. We've got an Irish man coming over to like, and Flint, Michigan is like, that's the place with the, with the lead in the water, the poison water. Yeah, because I was going to say Detroit in general is just... Yeah, and I I did some storytelling in Detroit while I was Mm. there. I actually arranged, like, I went to a a kid's school um, on one of my days off. 
but you know, I have to get talked to about like kind of I was getting driven around the area and they were talking about the shootings and stuff like that. Yikes. And I'm going in and sitting down with these little kids yeah. who have never seen an Irish man before. And yeah. they're like asking the kids, where do you think he's from? And they're like, underground or France. They don't even know the accent. Yeah, two of them said underground. I'm like, I know how I look. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but the difference between being in that school in a place called Ypsilanti, like this just on the edge of Detroit, mm. to then going to this big institute that has like Picasso's, literally tens of millions of dollars worth of artwork in the place. Yeah. And I'm there in this massive 300 plus seater auditorium. And I'll be honest, I had a couple of drinks. Um, I actually, I brought, I brought Putin with me. Oh um, my god! Yeah, I brought it over with me because I needed to because it was just, it was, it was really overwhelming. Yeah. But as soon as you could, like, because they brought the lights up a little bit for me so I could see people, and there was such a diverse range of people in the audience. Yeah, there was some of the big contributors to the institute, you know. Um, there's a lot of expats, you know, I got talking to afterwards, hmm. but I, I could see their faces and they were so into it that I, I suppose I probably didn't need a couple of drinks, but there was just that, that hunger for storytelling. And I was yeah. so out of my depth, you know, I was so, I was in like, <laughs> I was thousands of miles away. Yeah. Um, being looked after actually strangely by a woman from Sligo who moved <laughs> over there and was one of the directors as well. Of the movie. Oh, it's, it. like, she, it's like, cause it's not a tourist town. Yeah, but, you but always find hunger, each other. But the hunger for storytelling is unreal. Yeah. And the hunger for Irish storytelling, you know yourself, like how people respond to us as a people. I think one of our most defining factors as as a people, as a nation, is how we talk to each other. You know, how we yeah. communicate with each other. Our use of swearing is just brilliant. It's very, very little of it is is malicious. Yeah. Um, I got I got to stand up on that stage over there, like you know, in front of these kind of people with like, you know, well-to-do people, and and say fuck on stage, yeah, because it's just part of the nature of of, of how I'm telling the stories. It's not written into it, but if I'm passionate about the story, you know, you what got, I mean, I'm going to say he fucked the child across the room. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But you're given free license, which I is think. amazing. Um, which is amazing. And we actually have one rule, or rather, we have lots of rules in the museum, but the guys know what I mean when I say we have one rule, hmm. which is always be ready to say sorry. Right, okay, yeah. That's because fair. when you're when you're telling the story, it's amazing. Like, I talked as well. I did talk about the puka on TikTok, but mm-hmm. I talked about changelings as well. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done a changeling story in a room and then heard someone crying. in Because in, it's in a dark space when we, like, do our nighttime tours. Yeah. And I got talking to the woman afterwards and she was like, no, she said, I loved it. It was brilliant. She says, but you know, I, she, she'd lost the child herself. And I was talking about this idea of like that these changings were actually babies born with medical conditions. I go, I go into the very real side of it. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, halfway through the story and I just hear this kind of low sobbing coming from the corner of a room. So the impact it has on people, it's entertainment at the end of the day, but the impact can be very real. I was going to ask, what's the difference between like a normal tour and an over 18 store <laughs> um my guys have to hold back an awful lot you know right, what i mean okay. you during the day you can you don't know who you're because you get 45 minutes with them and it doesn't take long to get a good feel for them mm-hmm. but you can't go into the fact i mean like there are traditions in ireland um there was one again i put up on tiktok which is the whole idea of like the king's nipples in ireland you I know um you know, I'm glad you didn't see it, but I'm going to tell you about it now anyway. 
Yeah. Um, so a greeting for someone in a position of power was to, uh, and I'll wait till you're not drinking for me to say this, is to suck on their nipples. That was a greeting for a king. Now, we have bog bodies in the National Museum, mm-hmm. and you go and look at those bog bodies, and some of them are missing their nipples. If you wanted to make sure someone wasn't in a position to be a king in this life or, or in the, the other world, as they call it, yeah. you'd remove the nipples if you defeat them, let's say, or if there was a dispute. But one of the bog bodies has really long nipples. And there's even like there's information there beside the bog bodies explaining this tradition, you know. But if I had like if I was doing a tour for like families during the day and a lot of the museum's visitors are Irish. Yeah. You know, if an Irish mother doesn't want you talking about that stuff in front of her kids, she's not going to wait and give you a trip advisor review. She's going to tear into you there and then. Yeah. You know, and scold you. So so we can't go into stuff like that. We right, can't say hilarious. that, you know, in, in Northern Ulster, like to be a king, you used to have to catch a white horse, kill it, and ha- well, have sex with it first, then kill it, cut it up, cook it, and eat it, and then drink the broth, the the water from, from cooking it with your soldiers. But that was another tradition that was done in Ireland. Irish, Irish mythology is messed up. That is so fascinating. But, but I, I should say, like, the first book of children's, uh, of Irish mythology for children wasn't written until the 1890s. I uh, Sorry, it was 1884, I mm. think. So before that, storytelling was not a thing for kids. Interesting. You know what I mean? It was it right. was people in pubs. The kids were gone to bed if it was being done in a home because the stories were all about death and misery and sex and violence, you know? That's um, yeah, we've had to purify things an awful lot for kids. And I think yeah. we need I think we need to get back to it because we could lose an awful lot of the really good, gritty stuff mm. um, if we just leave it to, you know, doing the Sam knowledge in school or the Giant's Causeway being yeah. done, you know? Yeah. Um, I think we need to be kind of producing stuff and giving a format for, for adults to do it, which is why we came up, to bring it back around to your question, which is why we came up with Dark Lamb for the museum. Yeah, my guys were chomping at the bit to talk about this horrible stuff because they would risk it during the day they'd talk about something and they'd get away with it sometimes yeah. and that's where the whole thing of always be ready to say sorry sorry comes from me because yeah, I'm, no, okay. I'm no one dealing with the complaints yeah um, and they never mean to shock or anything like that but on the nighttime tour over at Dean's it yeah. was always couples coming in couples and groups mostly Irish and English coming in and you know with that kind of audience you can get away with anything yeah. And we didn't have to make stuff up because we had things like going, go look at the bog bodies, go read this, you know, 12th century manuscript by Gerald of Wales. And it'll reference these horrible, really messed up things people were doing. Mm. That's so fascinating. So does it happen? It obviously happens at nighttime, right? This, this tour. Yeah, it happens at nighttime. It's strange talking about it now because we, we haven't done it in so long. Yeah, just you by know, the sound of it, I, I want to find out as much information because I want to go to it now. Just have to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can't wait till it's back. But we started off doing, um, when we started off doing Dark Land, we had a few iterations of it. We tried to... Sorry, am yeah. I back, am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're I was, Yeah, it, actually, it could be my battery that was going. <laughs> um, yeah, we went through a few iterations where we didn't get Darkland quite right. We were mm. relying on audience participation in an almost scripted kind of way. We tried to do it character-based, and we realized after a couple of years of that, and it wasn't working, we just said, let's just do a daytime tour, mm. but like unleash it and just kind of like let out whatever you want to do. If you need to get into costume, if you need to like kind of like 
get yourself in a different headspace and do it and not wear like the museum sweatshirts, do whatever you want. Mm. And the guys got a bit more theatrical with it. And then we kept it to a very small audience. Like a daytime tour was normally like 20 people. Right. Darkland was usually like just a few less, just, you know, keep it down to like 14, 15, 16 people. Yeah. And, um, and we'd have a, an extra 15 minutes on those tours as well. Right. And it just worked really well. But they were like, it's being sold out. It'd be on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, four shows a night. Amazing. Starting, you know, 30 minutes apart. And they were always full. Because I always look at it coming down from the lift or from the escalator in Jervis. I'm like, ah, oh, let's go in there one day. I wonder what that's about. Because it's, well, it also seems ridiculous. Like yeah. the reactor response we got at the very start. I remember actually one of the guys had a man spit in his face. Now, it didn't help that, you know, the, that the, the staff member had an English accent and he was talking uh-huh. to this guy who was came up messing and joking, going, this is ridiculous, like leprechauns, are you serious? And then the response comes with an English accent. So yeah. and someone's like, knows more about the folklore than, than the guy does. But it got heated and he spat in his face. Christ. Um, we get we get a lot of like digs thrown that online, but again, it's that Irish thing, like it's just water off a duck's back. We don't yeah. get defensive. Yeah, you just you like know, unless they're actually saying something about someone who works there, like slag mm. off the idea of the museum. But I think the call at the National Leprechaun Museum suddenly makes it more accessible for a different type of audience. I've always said that what we do is it's a it's a theater level experience, but mm. for a cinema audience. So that couple who like would never go to the Abbey will go to a leprechaun museum. That's now they, fair, yeah. they're going in for a bit of fun and sitting giant furniture and walk through a rainbow, but they're being exposed to like hundreds of years worth of of Irish storytelling, which again is one of our most important cultural traits is our storytelling. One hundred percent. I completely agree with that. So what's yeah, we, your we just dress it up. What's your favorite Irish story then? What's what's the favorite thing you've heard? Um, oh, it's the one I'd never be able to do the whole version of it on here. But I, I love those ones like I've done on the podcast, like like the, the man, just like the local Daniel level Finity. stories. I like yeah, because I, like, I mean I love mythology, but it's big and epic, and it's like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and within that stuff, I love characters like the Dagda, who's like the daddy of the Irish gods. Anything with him is brilliant. Mm. Um, but I love I love folklore because it's it it's always set in a place, and there's people like. Like you said, like your your granddad's mate. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. always something like that, so it's easier to buy. And I've nothing in common with the Fina with a bunch of warriors running around. That's so right. that bloke who's on his way home from a pub one night and he gets like lost in a fairy field. That's that's the kind of story I can I can tap into. But there's a story called uh, Donald and his neighbors, or it's sometimes called Hudden Donald and Hudden Dudden and Donald O'Leary, um, which is about these two grumpy old guys, like the fellas from the, the Muppet show, you know, yeah, two yeah, old guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like them, but in a little slip of land between them lives this fella who is just really cheery and they hate him and they want to kill him. So they kill his cow, right. thinking that he'd have to sell up because he's only got one cow. Okay. And all these men just live with their mothers, so it's so Irish. So they kill his cow and that doesn't get rid of him. He heads off with the cow and sells the skin of it. But, um, he lies to the guys and tell him he found a place that will pay a fortune just for, you know, the skin of a cow. So they kill all of their own cows and skin them and they go off and they can get nothing for them. I won't, I won't, I won't spoil what, what he actually got his money from. And, and in the end, then they go into his house one night and they're going to stab him in his bed. But he knows they're coming. So he swaps beds with his mother. 
he tells his mother to sleep in his bed because it's warmer and it's a cold winter night. And they come in and they kill his mother. And he's like, oh, well, at least I'm not dead. And then he has to go and bury his mother. And um, it's just this thing of him overcoming. And they think he's dead. So when he comes back down the road that evening, they think it's a ghost. Um, and it just it's it's just a very real story about people because and I was the same way about ghosts when I was being into the paranormal was yeah. I wasn't going to get an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with a ghost but people are really accessible yeah true and I can relate to people I can meet that character and that you know that bloke and that woman and you can see the characteristics in them so I much prefer the stories that are about people yeah that makes sense but that's that's yeah. even so interesting that's that's so funny. That's such an Irish thing as well. Like, but even our fairies, like, like when people talk about fairies, you know, they think of Tinkerbell and stuff like that. But the Irish fairy folk looked like us. They mm. went to market. They played sports. There's this idea of them like being almost like an indigenous people in Ireland before the the Gaels mm. came across the Milesians, and that they just had different customs and different beliefs. But they looked like us, and that again just makes it. There's nothing that's too far fetched in Irish stories. Yeah. Even the likes of the puka, it's a big black dog or it's a it's a goat with a chip on its shoulder. They're all things you can think. I can imagine a guy having to run in with a goat and telling his mates that it was a puka when yeah. really he's just got like headbutted by a goat because he was yeah. in a field taking a slash and he shouldn't have been. But I like so, the idea that the, they have to help people. I thought it was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, puka's a, the puka is an amazing character. And I remember picking blackberries on the Oban Road, back when my father used to referee football matches when I yeah. was a kid, and the, the field was surrounded by um, bushes with, with blackberries on them. Mm. But we weren't allowed to pick them after a certain date, and the story was that the puka pees on them. Or, now, in some in some version of they say the puka spits on them, and it's it's a widely kind of known belief after a cer- over a certain age in Ireland. But really, the, the it just means the fruit has spoiled. And right, you probably okay. end up getting cramps and stomach aches. Yeah, yeah. But we've always used, we've always used our folklore as a way to control people's behavior as well. Like if you want yeah. people to stay away from somewhere like the Hellfire Club, you know, or there's a is a part of the woods where there's a big hole in the ground, and you tell people that's there's a you know big black dog that guards it, and it's a badger set. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, we yeah. use there's this thing of fears the third parent. We can right. use storytelling to control, and in Ireland, fear, guilt, and shame are three really powerful things that have been used against us by our mothers, by the church. Yeah, because I was going to say, my nana would always say, like, if you're going to do something or you're going out, someone's like, "Holy God is watching you," and you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 "I get yeah. it," or Santa, <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is. Well, that's it. It's it's used against us, and I think yeah. it's it's why I think it's strange not to bring gender into it, but. When people picture a storyteller, they automatically picture an old man. Hmm. But I found, and from someone like hiring storytellers, I've always had a higher percentage of women, female storytellers, than men in the museum. Hmm. That's fair. And there is something about like Irish women that just makes them fit. I mean, when they're talking to you and they're serious, you pick up and you listen as an Irish man. Yeah. yeah. Because you're used to the authority figure in most Irish people's homes is actually usually the mother. 100%. And yeah. not the father. You know yeah. what I mean? So I find that a, a, a female storyteller commands an awful lot more attention in a lot of cases. Mm. I'm saying this as as a male Irish storyteller, but I just find, and maybe it's me, maybe it's it's my issues. I do I do tend to choose the storytellers 
but there is this thing about a strong female storytelling. There's just almost nothing like it. No, Mark, 100%, because even my, I could listen to my granny all day. All yeah. day. She has such a soft voice and she'll, she's full of interesting stories. And like that, it might not even be something that's relatively interesting. It's slightly yeah. more interesting than a lawnmower, but, you know, less interesting than <laughs> the puka. So You'd be surprised. Yeah, be fair. Surprised. But she just goes well, on about s- something that happened like, you know, 80 years ago or 70 years ago. And you just kind of tuned in and you're like, this, like, this is so fascinating. And it's, it helps that, you know, thankfully my granny's memory is like fully functioning. She is sharp as anything that when there's just like flex of detail and it's detail about something that we wouldn't necessarily have access to in the 21st century or that we don't exactly have it. You have to use that bit of imagination to say when this was this or when we had this and you had to, you know, meet in the clock under clearies, whatever it was. You know, yeah. it, you're just so tuned into it, and I lo- I love it. Well, I would I would definitely recommend that you get in and you ask her, can you? And you just record some of it, even just the conversations. Don't have it like recorders, like here, tell this story, and I'm pressing record now. Right. Um, because I I don't have any grandparents left. Hmm. Um, my mother passed away seven years ago. My father though has vascular dementia. You know what uh, I mean? And yeah. this is um. This is a man who was raised by the nuns. This man was in our Tain Boys School um, with the Christian Brothers and went from there into the army, was serving in the Congo at the age of like 19. Um, Back when the Jadaville thing happened, he wasn't there at the the siege of Jadaville, but he was there that year. I remember learning about that. um, But he has so many incredible stories. Mm. Is that... Oh, yeah, you know, you're back. My phone. Yeah. I'm going to have to plug in my phone now. Give me one yeah, second. Yeah, no worries. Take your time. Well, sorry for you that you'll have to go through all this. It's grand. I had to get my friend <clears throat> to like fix fix one up for me the other day because uh, we were all just like sitting around having drinks. Um, and I was like, I can't fix this properly. You Because he did music uh, engineering and so, or sound engineering. So I had to get... Right. Like, you fix this for me, please. Please. So. Oh, they're doing over a few drinks. Is, it's, is the best way to do it. One hundred percent. We told so we were telling stories about like how I kicked down a door in Prague in our Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we had a friend who was staying with us and he wouldn't wake up. Right, he had a toothache for the whole trip. We felt really bad for him, and he just no matter he went to uh, an ostensible dentist in the Czech Republic. Right. And the dentist was like, uh, "Do you have insurance?" And he was like, "What's that?" So that was kind of the, the caliber <laughs> of uh, of situation that we were dealing with. And anyway, he stayed in the night we went out and just like, you know, obviously went to the, the pharmacist, got some like really strong medication. And we also left him with the key in case he wanted to go to the shops to go for a smoke or whatever the case was. Yeah, of course. So we're out and I just have enough of this this club scene uh, by this time. And I was like to my friend Danny, I was like, Danny, you have the key. Come on, hand it over. I've, I've fallen down the stairs. I've evaded the young ones trying to get after Jordan here, who's one of our friends. I was like, I just want to go home. I've had enough. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And he was like, mate, no, I need the key. Robert's at home. Just go home and he'll be there. And I was like, okay. After like 10 minutes of bickering, I'm like, fine. So I make my way home and to this apartment where you have to climb like three flights of big Georgian stairs. I suppose they weren't Georgian. They were Czechian stairs. And yeah. I get to this big double doors. And again, I, I'm not in the fullest mental capacity, right? I'm, I'm not firing on no. all cylinders. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I rang my girlfriend at the time and I was like, Listen, I like I don't know what to do. I've rang Robert eleven times. Uh, I'm 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 standing here, and what what I was like, nah, you know what? I'm gonna kick it down. I'm just gonna do it. Uh, not not against my better judgment. And there was a camera in the corner, so I knew I was being watched as well. Yeah. 
so uh, I huffed and I puffed and I booted my size 12 shoe against the door a number of times until it came loose and I was able to get in. And I finally got in and finally my friend Robert wakes up and he goes, Rolly, because Ryan Collins, Rolly, it makes, like, you know, everything. Yeah. He goes, Rolly, why'd you do that? I had the key. And I was like, Robert, I know, but I <laughs> rang you 11 <laughs> times on Facebook and on your phone, you didn't pick up. And he's like, all right, well, Jesus, um, do you want to smoke? No, I was like, no, I was like, no, I want to go to bed. He's like, but well, it's something. There's nothing I can do about it now. We may as well just enjoy the situation. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I want to go to bed. And then, listen, it all worked out fine because the next day there was lads with a drill and fixing the hinges in the door, and then we got a five star review on Airbnb, so it was all good. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Was it that's that's the type like, and you sat down and recorded telling that story, telling stories like that the other day, like recently. Yeah, yeah. The other night, yeah, we were all just sitting around and we were just um, and we were talking about the other time we went camping. Uh, we were we hiked up Lugnaquilla. Do you know what that is? Yeah, like the, yeah, 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 yeah. We hiked up that, and our intention was that I had a tent, and I drove some of the lads up, and we were going to stay uh, in the tent, and like over after the hike, just because like by the time we got back to the car, it was so late. So yeah. we hiked up the hill, and we just literally, I'm, I'm sure there is a route, but the route we took was there's the top on the map, and we'll just go for it from where we are. So we ended up yeah. just going in a straight line up the hill, up, up, up towards the top. And there was points where it was at like a 75 degree angle to the point where you're almost walking up a wall to get up to the next level. And it was like you'd reach the summit <laughs> yeah. and get to like this level plane full of sheep and walk through all this like un, what I say, untouched grass full of sheep. Yeah. And then we just keep going. Till we got to the next to the next to the next one. And my friend Dylan was just there and we got to a certain point. And he was like, just leave me. Just leave me behind. I won't make it. I won't make it. <laughs> and we we're like, Dylan, come on. The top and every like every kilometer would be like, Dylan, it's only like 10 more minutes. Come on. Come on. You're not you're not quitting now. And he's like, no, no. You said that so many times. I, I, I can't do it. And like, Dylan, just come on. We'll get the picture and we'll go back down and it'll be fine. So we we get eventually get to the top, go back down and we're setting up this tent. And we set up the tent and the plan is we're just going to have a few drinks and, you know, you know, whatever chat a bit and then go go and stay in the tent so we set up the tent and that's all good and my friend dara just goes like we're just playing games or whatever and he goes boys what's that and we're like dara and he goes no no shh what's that and we're like there's nothing there relax and he's no no hold something against the tent so we did and i was like no you didn't it's fine don't like just stop so then we we get back to it and 10 minutes later he goes danny did you hear that like, did you hear it? And, and he's like, what are you on about, Dara? And he's like, there's something there. And then my friend Dylan was like, Dara, what are you saying? He goes, shut up, Dylan. I'm telling you, there's something there. So we're about four meters from my car, right? Is where the tent is. And I'm like, no, there's nothing yeah. there, but you're making me scared now. So he unzips the tent. We get outside. And unbeknownst to us, Dara had brought like a kitchen knife. And he just he just brandishes oh, this kitchen knife. And he's like, come on, I dare you. I dare you to come at me. And I was like, Dara, you're shouting into the woods. Like if there any if there is anything out there, it's coming for you now. Like so, yeah. And he was like, "Do you see that?" And to be fair, there was a point where we all saw like a light or a flash or something go off up in the distance. Yeah. And I was like, "No, surely not. Like it must be a fox or something. Like there can't be." And then we got back in the tent, and it sounded like there were things coming up the sides of the tent and brushing off the tent. I was like, "Ah, no, okay, we're not safe." And then it just kept happening more frequently and more frequently. So yeah, we, we all were like, "Okay." We're going to have to leave the tent. And this is like, we're in the tent. The car is four minutes away. I'm like, okay, get everything in the bag and we'll just pack it in and throw it in. Fuck the tent and we'll drive away. And that's going to be it. And so we're like, three, 
we all leaped out of the tent, put everything in the car, and I've never driven as fast in my life on the country roads to get away from this point. And then, wouldn't you know it, as soon as I hit like five kilometers away, the petrol light comes on. I'm like, oh. And we're all just, okay, I was like, okay, we have 10 kilometers left. We can, we can make it to the petrol station. We can make, and then we're all just, we get to the, pe- the petrol station. And we obviously, when you're in a traumatic situation, you're going to ring your loved ones. So yeah, my friend got onto his girlfriend at the time and she was like, well, you're all pussies <laughs> and hung up. Uh, <laughs> and then my girlfriend did the same. And I was like, okay, phenomenal. Uh, so we all rang our mams and we're like, listen, this has happened. And we're all so scared. <laughs> so it's, it's just fun. It's, to it's, it can only happen with a bunch of guys. Yeah, it can only happen with a good bunch of guys, and it, it's funny because when you're describing that, like when you're saying like your mate who's like you have to convince to keep going, keep going. I'm thinking to me and my mates when we were 15, walking up to Kipure, going camping mm. with no cars, and we were teenagers. And Richie Mangan was the guy who just couldn't make it and didn't want to keep going. He lost his shoe in a bog, Um, you know the. <laughs> the paranoid one who's thinking the sounds outside and thinking that's Owen Coughlin like it's the same experience and I think it's part of the success of things like in betweeners yeah you know what I mean you, yeah when you when like when guys watch in betweeners they know they recognize the characters there's an archetype the in every group yes yeah, yeah they, and you recognize even like you look at a camping episode of that and you think that and the reason it's so successful is it's so accurate and it's so true yeah but then when you look at like uh, movies that on books that talk about a bunch of the guys going on an adventure together there's one without a paddle uh it's called with dax shepherd and seth green is in it i think uh, i've but seen the big that one, of course is is that the one it's, it's really it's a really weird one yeah i remember seeing that movie oh and they, they find a body or something is that right or they're after no, that's stand by me Right, yeah. Stand by me is where they find that's a, on the a train Stephen tracks. King a Stephen King book, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm trying to, I gotta remember the, what that that's is. That's the pinnacle of it. Yeah, and, and you'd kind of wonder, like, all these movies, why are they so successful? The ones of a bunch of guys together, and it made me question, like, okay, well, do women not have that relationship? You know, where they, where they end up in those kind of things, where without a pattern is the story of like them. They're all men. They're all grown men now. And they just, one of them has died and they're going to go on an adventure because their friend drew a treasure map when they were teenagers. That's that's right. Yeah, and yeah. it's, but then when you're talking about your mate ringing his, his then girlfriend and you ring yeah. yours, it makes me realize that no, women do have those bonds. With they're just each other, not as stupid But as they us. just don't get themselves. Yeah, they don't get yeah. into those stupid situations. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? They don't, like your petrol light came on. I tell you, there's no way, there's no way that my wife would like, would would set off on the journey without filling the tank with petrol, without yeah. everyone having gone the toilet and stuff, gone to toilet and stuff like that. But it 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 is funny because it has me thinking now of all the, the great folk tales that I love, where the main character finds himself in unusual situation. It's, it's like those three men living side by side, and the Donald yeah. and his neighbors. It's just like men are, which beautiful idiots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's it's a reason we don't like live as long days. yeah yeah no there really is but um but if but it's not even that like you like when you were telling that story to camping like that is storytelling that is like people like put people like getty lennon and like terms like shanaki up on a pedestal mm. not realizing that like you have mates or 
like your granny, people who just tell a story and do it in such a way that it's it's a, the most natural thing in the world to just listen to them. Yeah. And I think someone asked me recently about, um, they were looking to get into kind of like writing down stories. And I was saying, you want to be reading like 10 times as much as you're writing. You can't write a book if you, if you haven't like read a load of them. And I don't think you can tell stories unless you've listened to like to storytellers, you know. Mm. But your camping one there, I could I could nick your story of your camping trip, right? Feel free. Get in and tell that on a tour and receive a massive round of applause. You know what I mean? It's just it 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 that's the type of story people want to hear because they can relate to it. Yeah. Suddenly they're like they're that extra they're that they're that person in the tent with you. You know, yeah. Um, I think storytelling is just an incredibly relatable kind of art form. You know, I think people can relate to that an awful lot more than they can, like looking at a painting. You know. Yeah. No, I get that. And I, I say that someone who loves art, but yeah. yeah. Um, another thing I want to ask you about. I just loved your camping story. No, that's fine. <laughs> Feel free to take it, Mark. Honestly, you can have it. <laughs> um, another thing I want to ask you about was I see. When, when you put up a story, you're, like, making walking sticks. Is that right? Is that what I'm seeing? On, like, TikTok? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I love sticks. It's really funny because I've been slagged off about that for years because <laughs> people are, like, even my kids make fun of me. Like, they're, like, oh, I'll check out that. That's a good stick. And it, yeah, it, it sets like, me yeah, almost yeah, like, like someone would, like, be checking out a woman walking by. Like, I'd be, like, oh, I bet you appreciate it. That's a fine-looking stick. And all my co-workers all my staff when we go on our field trips because we travel around the country collecting yeah. stories that's yeah. how we end up talking to michael you know we hop on a bus at seven in the morning no idea where we're going but i'll always bring back a stick with me amazing and um they, they're great though but it's so relaxing just like kind of stripping the bark off the stick and sanding it down and i think if i could only have one prop ever for storytelling it would be a stick because it can be pretty much anything unreal you know a stick it, it, it's like you think of like playing as kids like a stick is a gun or it's a sword you know yeah yeah, yeah. um but until like you see like in movies people using an umbrella just something to gesture with you know and yeah. it's once you have that thing in your hand you have such confidence and you're an awful lot more comfortable but it becomes a bit of a crutch like literally and figuratively right but yeah okay. i fucking love sticks <laughs> that's, that's fair enough i was because i was walking up like the other day uh, with my girlfriend up to the the timber trove and up to the viewpoint there and i found a big yeah. stick and i was like ah yeah i'm keeping this and i was like i'm gonna take it home and i'm gonna sand it and i'm gonna strip it and it's gonna be great and she was like um okay you know you have to carry that back and i was like ah oh, yeah <laughs> i was like all right well, i'll find, I'll find another you stick wanna, you would have just you would you would have carried it back but yeah. the, where the timber trove is, that woods behind behind it, Lord Massey's. Like I said, that if you look at if you go and look into the the history of that, like mm. being used by the guards during like the height of the IRA issues, and about the uh, the botanical gardens in there, like there's palm trees in there, there's there's, there's everything. Yeah, um, I'd never Massey's been water, something like that. It's called. I'd never been in there before, and I was just so taken aback by the fact that it's so it's almost untouched. Like it looks. Like it's just natural. Like everything's falling naturally just because of the wind, and you can hear the trees hitting off each it's other. Old. And the little plaques around the place. There's an old fridge up there, which is like a stone-built kind of like shed, miniature shed, right on the water. And that's where they would have stored their food for keeping stuff. But they put a plaque up explaining some of the features. 
oh, but it's God. it's an incredible space. Uh, there's frog spot, there's frogs all over at the moment. There's badgers up there. I love badgers. Um, but Massey's is like like nowhere else in the country. It's got it's got so much history attached to it. Yeah. But I used to go up there like, when I was a teenager again, going up there on the mountain bikes, cycling through the woods. And um, yeah, I mean, it's like, how can someone not be involved in, in kind of creative pursuits if that's been their childhood, you know? Yeah, 100%. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I need to find, I need to do more reading on all of this because it's so, like, just, just listening to you makes me want to, you know, go to the Leprechaun Museum and find out all about this. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a great website called blather.net and um it's based on a, a magazine by flan o'brien who was a an, an irish character and storyteller and writer and journalist and but um on there like you do a search for on blather.net for massey's woods they've two well the big bunch of them they were kind of before boards there was a thing called p45 rant we're talking like a long time ago. It was the website for Irish people to talk on. Right. But these guys used to organize going walking up to the Hellfire Club in Massey Woods and then write a blog post about it. But um, Damien Nabarra and David Walsh, like when it comes to storytelling, the technical side of it, it's why like one of them has a PhD mm. uh, in, the, in the area of narrative and storytelling. Um, yeah, they, their writings on Massey's Wood and the Hellfire Club is incredible. I, I've been really lucky. I've just always been surrounded by people who are incredible at in what they do. Yeah. And kind of tapping into that just kind of makes me better myself, you know. But yeah, definitely look into Massey's Wood because it's on your doorstep. That's very true. Bring, bring, bring home the stick next time. Uh, yeah, no, I will have to. I will have to. Um, what was I going to say, Mark? So I suppose what, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go after this one. I just want to know, what, what do you think makes a good storyteller? Like, is there a trait you can teach or is there some is it just something that most people are born with and then you know that's it like like how do you train no, a storyteller? You, know what? you can i mean you can nurture a storyteller you can give them pointers but if someone's not comfortable talking right yeah i mean there's nothing you can do with it you know what i mean if someone's not you just can't get into that space but there's definitely kind of there's definitely tricks and tips and things that you can teach them you can like, like when to leave a pause, what to, to actually understand the story. When I talk to my guys, when I'm training storytellers, I'll tell them that they need, first of all, they need to buy into the story. You mm. know, we're expected to tell stories that we aren't necessarily into, but we have to find something that we enjoy in it. But also if you're telling a story, you should understand what happens before the story and what happens after the story. Even if you don't communicate that, you should right. understand the character so well that it's not just page one to page ten and that's that's all you get you know right okay. um so in, in that regard you can teach that stuff but if someone doesn't want to be telling stories or just isn't comfortable mm. you can't do it i mean that's it's right. it's it's tough they normally to train up a storyteller in the museum and we're, we're talking about guys who like the process to become a storyteller in the museum is when we're hiring mm. we put out a call for people we get cvs we always look for the unusual and the extraordinary you know i remember yeah. reading one cv by someone who had no storytelling experience but she described selling underwear in Debenhams on valentine's day to awkward boyfriends and husbands <laughs> like how, how she actually described what her duties were while working in Debenhams was amazing yeah but she'd no storytelling experience 
and when you find those interesting people you bring them in yeah. you get them to tell you a story and um, sometimes you have to bring them back and get them to tell you a second story yeah. and there's been times in the like in the 11 years of the museum where i have one position and there's two people and i end up just having to take them both on and they <laughs> can take i, I allow I allow like 24, 25 hours of training to get into a point where I think this will work or it won't work. Mm -hmm. And it's all being communicated at the end of that time. I might say to them, you know, I, I, now is not the time because I'm going to need someone in two weeks and I'm, I'm struggling to get you there. Right. Okay. Um, or I might, I might go back to Tom and say like, I need, I need some more hours with this person. You've got to budget everything. It's, it's business at the end of the day and go, yeah. If I can work with this person, you know, another kind of 10 hours with this person and I'm going to break the back of it. Yeah. And um, I've done, I've never regretted doing that. It's always worked out. Um, but you're just really, it can be like pulling teeth sometimes, but right. I think anyone is capable of it. If they actively want to be doing it and are willing to listen. That's fair enough. And yeah. is there anything you do to like get them to train their memory in terms of storytelling because that would be something i'm interested in as well because there's a lot to remember when you're telling a story like if you're telling a story to the degree that you i'm sure expect it you have to leave in the pauses in the right places and get everything verbatim like has to be word for word yeah um naturally we'll get those type of people but with some people like yeah stuff won't stick with yeah. them but um i remember studying in my own time uh, about uh, hypnotism and right. there was a book called Reality is Plastic by a guy called Anthony Jackman. Him mm. and his dad ran the biggest like um, hypnotherapy clinics across the UK. But he was also an impromptu, like a street hypnotist. Right, and okay. his work on memory was brilliant. And then there was also the thing of like for studying that if you chew a particular flavor of chewing gum while studying yeah. and then you, you chew it for the exams. Yeah. Um, but, but again, if you can get someone to be interested in the story, they'll remember every detail of it. That's for sure. You yeah, know, and it's sense. not like I've never told the same story. I've told a, a story the same way twice because mm. I'll forget bits for, or I'll, if the audience is different, I'm going to want to lean more into this part of the story or take a slightly different angle. So being able to improvise on the spot is handy because we all mess up and forget where we are. This is true. But the great, you, you can have a room full of people on a tour of the museum and the storyteller just go, you know, there'd be a bang from Ben Dunn Jim upstairs. Some lad upstairs will drop a big heavy weight. Yeah. You know, and that, that would happen because you you know, we're it, in yeah. a building and there's things going on, or or a kid will ask a question, you know, or yeah. or, a, or a visitor who's probably had a couple of pints in Temple Bar before coming over will say something. Yeah. And you're flustered and you just turn around and you say, What was I saying again? And someone will prompt you and remind you. And that's that's the reality of having an actual human stand in front of you and tell you stories. Yeah. That's going to go, it's going to go wrong. You yeah. can't control it and you can't predict what's going to happen. It's just being able to, you know, get yourself back on track with the help of the audience. That's fair. So I'd say you're dying to get back to the now. <laughs> um, yeah, it can be, I'm just, I'm just having a, a couple of things going through my head where I messed up on stories. <laughs> I was once telling the story of how Fionn became the uh, leader of. No, I was telling the story of how Cucullin got his name. Yeah. And whatever flustered me on the tour, and I'm, I'm fairly hard to rattle. Right. Um, I ended up at the end going, and that's how Cucullin became leader of the FINA, which never happened. It was yeah. Fionn McCool was leader of the FINA. I mixed two stories together. 
but no one in the crowd, well, no one said anything, but I don't know if they even got that I was wrong. No, <laughs> um, no, no. no. So no. The, the memory, the memory thing is, yeah. If if you want to kind of know about memory stuff, go and look at uh, Anthony Jackman or look at um, some great psychologists out there. We actually brought in the magician from Tato Park, oh. who was a guy from Burhouse. Didn't know they had a magician. Yeah. But okay. um, um, we brought him in because he's a magician and he studied his art but he came in to talk to the storytellers and give a workshop mm. on the physicalities of the storytelling of how to talk to people how to make eye contact and where to touch someone on the arm and he was talking to us about um, I can't remember the magician's name who worked with Hitler um, in terms of Hitler talking to crowds the Hitler used mm. the Z view which is how you scan a crowd. Yeah, Hitler worked. Actually, I can't believe I'm getting this on top of Hitler. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he employed a, a very famous magician to teach him how to work with crowds. And in the museum, we got in a magician to talk to us about how to work with, with an audience, physically with an audience. Amazing. Um... Well, yeah, where do you where do you go with where do you go uh, with a statement like that? I'm not going to compare you to Hitler or the Leprechaun Museum to Hitler <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I'm sure no, they can no. they can condemn yeah, the actions completely. Uh, uh. <laughs> but it, Hitler in yeah, himself is a fascinating probably character. Edit that and put that, put that, put, put yeah. that earlier in the podcast, you know, <laughs> not that one. But um, yeah, you can look at other other skills and other trades that you can employ and bring into your kind of your skills as a storyteller. There's yeah. always things you can kind of add into it, you know, and help you with it. If you can sing or if you can play an instrument, you know, incorporate that into your storytelling. I I cannot play an instrument. I'm screwed. <laughs> you can wave a stick around, Mike. But, That's uh, all you need. I can wave a stick. And, and someone who looks like me has a big stick in a room full of nervous people. I'm in charge. I'm Listen, very lucky. <laughs> mate, you sound like me on a, on a good night in copper. So, um <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, when I when you're telling these stories about your your time in Bragg in Bragg and kicking the door down, I'm thinking they're all things I did. Yeah, if yeah. you're ever looking for if you're ever looking for a job, the leprechaun team may be hiring again in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, I tell you what, one hundred percent. But Mark, listen, um, I suppose I'll, I'll leave it there. I won't take up any more time because I'm, I'm sure, you know, you have stories to tell. Better things uh, my, my, they're, they're, I'm sure what I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this, I'd be on TikTok. <laughs> yeah listen it, you can lose yourself something fierce on tiktok let me tell you oh, I it, know. It, it's, it's incredible but again it is a platform that is super relevant and i think storytellers need to adapt to mm. the different platforms and the different uh, opportunities for telling stories and that's otherwise storytelling is dead yeah 100 i think like your podcast uh, i i'm dead excited to for the next episode to come on because like you said storytelling and especially the long form I'm really interested in because yeah. I know TikTok is very short, very quick attention span. But when it comes to podcasting, I can tune in and I can, you know, I can do my work and I can drive and I can listen to a podcast and I can take it with me. So I really, really enjoy that. Well, I designed the uh, the podcast for a TikTok audience, which is why it stays under 15 minutes. Mm. Uh, I, I keep it like in terms of podcasts, it's it's quite a short one. Yeah, I, I literally come out of like the, the demanding that I do a podcast uh, and record stories. Um, so, yeah, they're never going to be more than 15 minutes long. Amazing. Well, you can, you my can pee brain. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so, Mark, uh, where can people find you and what should they do about it? 
Um, well, the best place to always find me is is when it comes to like what I do is is the Leprechaun Museum. You know, mm. I can't wait till the doors are open, and I'm only one of you know a dozen storytellers in there. Um, so in terms of storytelling, that is the place. Um, you know, I'm always on TikTok, but that's again, like you say, it's very short and sweet on there. Um, Badger's Tales is a podcast. I will get a YouTube channel out and all that. But I suppose the main thing is that if you send an email to the Leprechaun Museum, it will land on my desk. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it below and, and all that good stuff. But Mark, thank you for your time. I hope we can do this again. Uh, I will make a trip to the yes, Leprechaun Museum. I'm going to have to grab you onto my podcast then. <laughs> Mate, 100%. I don't know what stories I have, but uh, I'm sure I can, I can whip but some You know, up. I get you on just for that camping story. And uh, and I also, I'm going to want to hear more about how you get on because I think you need to press your granny. And I'm going to guilt you now, okay, Ryan? Yeah. This is yeah. going to end it. I don't have grandparents. I lost my mother and my father has dementia. Right. Go and collect the stories before. It. That's heavy. But go and mm. collect them because you'll regret it if, they, if they're gone. That's true. And I do think about that quite a bit. So uh, yeah. thank you. And, and as they say, <laughs> on, on, on that bombshell. <laughs> well, I learned how to kill people from over yeah. before she died. <laughs> That's right. Another Irish trait bestowed okay, by the great teacher. No worries, my kids.